metta practice of loving-kindness, I want to offer you two practices. You know, the Buddha, when he taught, he never taught one-size-fits-all. It was understood that, you know, we're all wired differently and we all come with different ways of learning. a little bit. And we all come with different ways of learning. And so, just as you see this array of different teachers with different styles perched up here, and some may really just speak to you, words dropping into your heart, and some may not, but that's why there's so many of us. And also to give you permission to explore and experience the practice in your own way. So I'm offering you two different practices today and hope that one of them will land with you and help you have more access to this really blessed practice we call loving-kindness or metta. And Noah spoke on the very first morning in the instructions about how really that's the whole point of what we're doing here, is to create and um, experience and actually bask in this possibility of connection, of tapping into the flow of benevolence that is actually our birthright. And we don't really have an exact name for this kind of love in English. Um, So we have a hyphenated word, loving-kindness, to um, just to show that it's a kind of uh, ever-present possibility and it's a more universal kind of love um, than a personal one. So the first practice, I call it um, the jelly roll because it can be very sweet. So let's just sit for a moment and take a few deep breaths. And occasionally the stillness of our practicing together may be punctuated by some coughs. So I trust you'll just send some, um, you know, when metta or loving-kindness meets any kind of suffering, it turns into karuna or compassion. I assure you I'm not contagious. This is uh, day number 12. So um, I'll try not to. I have my cough drops, but if I do cough, sorry, I'll try not to make it too loud. So the metta practices engage our imagination and creativity. And in this one, I'm going to invite you to call to mind one or two or even a few beings, people or pets or It can be people who've passed away, 
and the criteria for who to include in this little circle is that it be people who care about your well-being and who would be happy to hear good news about you. And don't try to pick people for whom you have no ambivalent feelings whatsoever or your circle might stay empty. It's just those who care enough about you to be pleased, delighted when things are going well. And just take your time and see who wants to join this circle. And you can keep it as little or as wide as you wish. Some of us have wide circles of friends and some of us keep it quite intimate. And when you're ready, just look around your circle and notice that each being is looking at you with eyes of warmth, of friendship, of caring. of love. And then taking your time, one by one, look into the eyes of each one and see if you can receive this warmth and caring, this friendliness and love. Notice how it feels to take that in.
And please don't hurry around the circle. And notice any feelings of discomfort. And see if you can stay with receiving the love. And if your circle is very tiny, maybe one or two, just sit quietly together or stand however you are. And see if you can just soak up the warmth that's being extended to you. And this caring is beyond the changing moods or threads of emotion. The movements that George was talking about, moving towards and pulling away. It's a more unifying force or strength of loving and caring. It's not phased by the changes and ups and downs in relationship. So as you stand or sit in this circle, you might want to Go around one more time and acknowledge each person. And if you're still working your way around the circle, take your time.
and each being in this circle. Whether they understand what you're doing here in retreat or not, they wish you well. They'll be glad to hear you had a good retreat. And by the end, no matter how it is now, you will have had a good retreat. And when you're ready, just looking around and meeting those eyes of love one more time. And then let the whole circle, one by one, just dissolve into light and melt into your heart. And as each being melts into your heart, that's sort of the jelly roll. They encircle you with the sweetness of caring. And as you receive, this becomes part of you. And sometimes if you're practicing metta and you really don't feel so connected to it or you feel like it's uncomfortable or challenging to offer to yourself, this is sometimes a way that uh, some of you can access that connection to a felt sense of, of love and kindness of affection and being held in the benevolence 
of the universe. And when we're practicing metta, we can feel that stream of silent bless yous to the person who sneezes or coughs. It's quite wonderful. Instead of disturbing the peace, we're offering everyone a chance to send some metta. So I'd like to guide you through the second practice that I'm offering you to try out and explore and see how it is for you today. Please be sure you're sitting comfortably. It's really hard to generate feelings of love and kindness and warmth and generosity when you're in a blaze of pain. Um, This metta practice is meant to brighten, uplift, gladden our hearts. And we can be playful with it. So please sit in a posture where you feel at ease. So some of you have done this practice with me before. We offer metta to ourselves as a child. And this can be really helpful um, if you're in a time of not so much self-love and appreciation. To imagine yourself when you're little it can help soften the heart. Whatever grudges you're holding against yourself or judgments or reproaches to your adult self. When we invoke the child, it can often be easier and simpler. So once again, just finding your breath, settling into the stillness that's already here. It feels wonderful in here. As somebody who's been resting and not in the hall so much, I can really feel the 
change in the atmosphere that your practice has created. It feels wonderful. So now what I'd like you to do is imagine yourself as a little girl, a little boy, a little being. And see if you have a picture in your mind. It might be a photograph that you remember. It might be a scene from your childhood. You might be very little or bigger. And really take a look at yourself as a kid and just notice some details about what your hair is like. What you're wearing. Whether you're barefoot or you're wearing shoes. And notice the scene where you are. And now you're magically able to just step right into that scene. So now you're here, facing yourself, your little self, your younger self. If you're really little, you might want to crouch down so that you're more eye to eye. And please introduce yourself. Tell this young one that you are them. They grew up, they survived and they grew up to be you. And no matter what the passing mood you may be in about yourself and your own value, here, today, now, reassure them that it's good news that they grew up to be you, because look where you are. Again, if it's a little child, you may want to put them in your lap or 
Put your arm around them if it's an older child, maybe just putting an arm around their shoulders, whatever feels right. And take a moment to really look into their eyes. this child what they most need to hear at this time in their life. You know, usually it's just, you're a good kid. Just whatever you know, actually, you know what this child needs to hear. Just take your time and tell them what you see when you look at them. And maybe you feel some love and tell them that. they're hurting or scared, you can reassure them. It may take a while, but it's going to be okay. Maybe you want to play with them for a minute or two. You can take a few minutes and play. Whatever feels right. Maybe just hugging. Telling a story. Listening. To what they want to tell you.
And some of you may be wanting to spend more time. And some of you are very ready to stop. Whenever you're ready, please tell this child that they are part of you and you'll always be together. You might offer a hug if that feels right or squeeze of the shoulders, a pat on the back. And then once again, putting your arm around this child, letting them just dissolve into light and melt into your heart. And then allow the whole scene, the context where you met, to also dissolve and melt into your heart. And this is a practice you can do over and over with all different ages and stages of your life when you're offering metta to yourself. With the profound understanding and trust that far from being uh, a selfish exercise, that the more your being is suffused with tenderness, the more love you can receive, the more you'll have to offer. To yourself, to your friends, to all those whose lives you touch and to our world. And so for the last 10 minutes of our sitting, 
please feel free to practice whatever form of metta has touched your heart during these last few days. making sure you're comfortable and at ease.
the Buddha was um, very clear about when he passed away, he didn't, you know, he didn't really appoint a successor in this. He just said, when I'm gone, it will be the community and the community's practice of metta that will be the teacher, the precepts and, um, and the metta. And he talked about mental acts of metta, like the ones that we just did, the two practices. Um, and then he talked about bodily acts of metta. And um, like an example of a bodily act of metta, I used to live um, in the apartment that I had before where I live now, and um, four apartments shared a washer and dryer. And it would be rare, but every once in a while, I would come down and somebody would have folded my laundry before they used the dryer, you know, when they took it out of the dryer so they could use it. Now, that's, that's a bodily act of metta. And I'm bringing this up because I really, you know, we're living harmoniously as a community. Some of you are several people sharing a room, which is a challenging practice. And a mental act of metta is to keep the silence. A bodily act of metta is to not read books late into the night with, you know, whether it's a flashlight or the lamp or, you know, to really be considerate of each other because the container of the, re- of the retreat supports our practice. And so all day long working to be mindful, to be quiet, to be attentive, uh, and then going back into the, you know, we're sort of pushing the cart in one direction. And then going back into the room and blah. I'm not saying anyone's doing that, but just in case you're tempted to go back to your room and check your phone and, or talk to each other. Maybe you really made a great connection with all your roommates and it's just kind of friendly and fun. Um, you don't have roommates at home, you know. Uh, but to please try to... Uh, sustain this affectionate silence and consider it a mental act of metta to protect the solitude of each other. Because that's the great thing about doing this together, being in silence together. We have the best of both worlds in a way. We get to tuck into ourselves and have an experience of solitude and a chance to drop the whole social persona and explore what this is, this life in the form of this body and this mind and this heart. Um, but then we have the company of each other. You know, we're not alone. We all are in this together. So I want to encourage you to practice mental and bodily acts of metta to help support the container of the retreat. So also, um, I know one person at least so far, has turned in their phone. And we will keep your phone. We'll return it to you charged, in fact. Um, (laughs) Ready to use. You know, when we were doing the practice, when we were younger, we didn't have cell phones, and we didn't have, you know, it was easier in that sense to be um, quiet. And if, you know, your mind was generating, of course, 
you know, the inner silence wasn't always there. I used to write letters to people. Not that I ever actually wrote letters, but when I was meditating, I wrote lots of letters. You know, we didn't have email, um, but now we have all this chance to always be connected. And it might be good. You can do one day at a time. You can turn it in for one day and just see what is it like to be totally unplugged for one day. If you decide it's not for you, you can come back and you can just say, you know, emergency or something you have to... And, um, and we'll give you your phone back. You don't even have to tell a lie. Um, because, you know, ask Jack. My phone is my binky. The other day I said to him, I've been without my phone for two hours. You know, it, we get very um, bonded sometimes. So I want to encourage you, you can turn it into the manager's office and really do one, just say, I'm just going to go 24 hours. You don't say, you know, I'm going to go the rest of the retreat. But I encourage you to do it. It's another um, mental and bodily act of metta for yourself and your retreat. So you have some time to walk before supper. I'm going to stay here, and if there's any of you who have questions about the metta practice, you can feel free to stay and ask, and everybody else go and enjoy this glorious desert beauty. So I'm actually going to share with everybody what what Hannah just um, brought up. Um, And so one thing was she was talking about the not making eye contact when people are walking past each other. Um, Let's just do this together so we can all sit down and hear each other. Um, And she was saying, is it okay to offer a namaste, a little bow? somebody and of course it's okay it's okay many people have been trained in retreats to look down at a 45 degree angle and maybe other teachers have talked about this in here I was I haven't been in here all the time but um, so if you notice people averting their gaze it's not because they think you're ugly or they don't like you or they're completely antisocial, it's because they've been taught to practice that way, to tuck into, you know, to really give everybody the solitude to not make eye contact. But if you make eye contact and smile, that's okay. It's not um, a retreat crime or anything. 
But don't try to seek each other's eyes out, you know, like a little wink or a little, uh, little flirty look, you know, holding the gaze a little too long. Um, just really respect the solitude of each other. But we're not, we're not saying you can't look at each other, or you can't offer a little bow. It's a lovely thing to do. Um, and then the other thing, has, has anybody talked about eating meditation, mindful eating yet? Some are saying yes, and some are saying no. <laughs> Who's telling the truth? <laughs> it was just a little, a little bit. Okay, well, we'll do that some more a different time. So I'd just like to stay with the questions about metta for now. Yeah. Is this a line of questions? Oh, you can leave? I thought you wanted to ask questions. <laughs> Please, leave. And anybody who has a question, stay. <laughs> Sorry about that. You're very obedient, though. But if you have a question, can you ask and I can tell it to everybody? Yeah. Do you mind if I repeat the question for everybody? was asking, uh, I was talking to my little self, and I know she was, she wanted love and attention, but she was tough. You know, she was not responding. Uh This is a great question. What do I do with that? Okay, this is a great question. What is your name? Cynthia. So Cynthia was talking to her little self and trying to give her love, but she wasn't having it. She was uh, being difficult. She was being very tough. And sometimes, I think you know, those of you who've had children or work with children, that the kids who need the love the most are often the most, um, shall we say, trying our patience and warding off the love by doing, you know, negative things. Um, And what should you do? Well, since it's a meditation, you could actually have her do what you would like her to do. That's one thing. Because this is actually your imagination. So you're creating that scene. And you might, for example, tell her that you know that she acts tough when she most needs to be loved. And then you could have her melt and receive the love. You know, just acknowledging what that toughness is. Because usually that's what it is, right? It's a defense against the fear that we won't be loved or that the love will come in a form that's hurtful. Because with a lot of children, the parental love is entwined with parental cruelty even sometimes. Or, you know, it comes in a form that's um, complicated. So, thank you. Yeah. Do you have a question? Or are you just afraid to leave? Um, I won't. (laughs) I won't look. You can leave. Yeah, so this is um, uh, the very common difficulty, which is at home. What's your name? Nima. So when Nima's alone at home, he can't really concentrate on metta so well, especially for himself. So he was asking if there are recordings, um, because he could do it really well with the guidance. And yes, and there's some on the Insight LA website. 
and other lots of other places too. But I have some on the Inside LA website. So yeah. Anybody else have a question, Meredith? So the question is about, <clears throat> Meredith was at Spirit Rock practicing a few weeks ago, and was it one of the teachers talked about kindfulness, or you thought of that? We did, here. Yeah. And kindfulness, yes. Yes, maybe it was Noah, I can't remember who said that, but it was beautiful. And sometimes we talk about heartfulness, because actually mind is a translation of citta, and that word means both heart and mind. It was the Westerners, more cerebral types, who translated it as mindfulness. They could have just as easily translated it as heartfulness. Um, so the question is about when her heart is opening, sometimes it's not actually an emotion or a feeling of love, but actually a physical sensation of opening. And sometimes it's maybe a little scary because it's unfamiliar. And I wish my hot flashes had been... Uh, she asked if I had ever had a hot flash where my heart did that, and I was just saying, actually, my heart never did beautiful openings like that um, when I was having hot flashes, which I'm past right now, thank goodness. But... Um, I think that's great that you think it's fear. She thought it was fear, and then when she looked more deeply and felt into it, she realized it was the opening sensation. And I'm not sure what the question is, but that's a, um, that's a beautiful practice description. Because often we'll go to the familiar thing. Oh, usually if I feel fluttering, it's fear. But you actually looked more deeply and you realized, no, this is not fear. This is actually a sensation of the heart opening. Now, is the heart itself you know, the meat-beating heart opening. I don't know, maybe it's just a kind of um, relaxation. I'm not familiar with chakras and things like that, but maybe you are. But certainly, some kind of relaxation and opening can be felt physically. Thank you. If you feel it, it's happening. So what Meredith is saying when she wishes, may I be happy, and really opens to may I be happy, that's when she feels the sensation. And I'm saying, that felt sense is real in the moment. And what is reality? 
we are trusting our perceptions here, what we see, hear, taste, touch, smell, that this is the truth of this moment. It may not be some truth, capital T, that's always true and forever, but it's the truth of this moment. And so, yeah, trust that. Thank you. Do you have a question? Yeah, sometimes when I'm doing the um, kindness meditation for myself, I'm just feeling very self-centered. It makes you feel that way, yeah. yeah. Well, not. I mean, I, I am feeling that way all, already. And so it's harder to do. What's your name? Catherine. So Catherine is saying, and this is something I think lots of people feel at the beginning, she's saying she feels self-centered. And then when she's wishing kindness for herself, she feels even more self-centered. And, um, you know, it's a misunderstanding of the practice. Like my mom used to say at the beginning, she'd say, oh, you just spend all that time navel-gazing. <laughs> and she really changed her tune over the years because she saw I was just, I was getting nicer to her. Um, you know, we're all self-centered. That's why we're here. Because we want to learn to be free of seeing everything through the lens of, is this going to help me? Is this going to hurt me? Is this threatening? Is this help? You know, constantly. Everything that way. And it's like looking at you know, this vast, boundless sky through a straw. And so, that, you know, acknowledging and being honest about the self-centeredness that you carry, that's, that's the dukkha, the suffering that the Buddha talked about as being kind of a first fact of life. But to do this, really, why are we doing this? We're doing this to free our hearts from that self-centeredness, right? You're here. And you didn't come here to deepen your self-centeredness, right? <laughs> no. And so the more you free your heart, it, you know, what feels like selfish, because we're, um, some of us have been taught not to focus so much on ourselves, which ironically makes us focus more on ourselves, because a need that isn't satisfied keeps pushing to be satisfied, right? When we satisfy the need for attention and love and shower ourselves with it, we can let it go and actually look around and start to feel that loving connection all over the place, not just confined to our little circle of friends or family. It really doesn't stop at the threshold of our front door anymore. Yeah, yeah. Any other question? Yeah. Um, that second practice was really, really powerful, and I have a question about, uh -huh. you know, for instance, we spent the first half, and I, I just kind of sat here like a, like a rock, and the love of my, the people that cared most for me in my life, I was like, okay, thank you, let's move on. You mean like, that's nice, yeah. but you couldn't really bask in it or anything, yeah. I was worried that I would, I 
kind of get lost. Like I, I felt it was good I was in this place because clearly it was a very tender, vulnerable place that I needed to, to be in. But I'm wondering, how do you know when to, when to stay in that place and just to be vulnerable and to feel all of that emotion? And how do you know whether you needed to kind of step back and give yourself more, more space and not, not get kind of lost? Well, first of all, if you get lost in tenderness and vulnerability, what would happen? Like, what would that look like, being lost in tenderness, feeling vulnerable and emotional? Like, do you think it would just turn into this sort of swampy thing, or what? No, I mean, I would probably cry for an hour or two. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever let yourself cry for an hour or two as a man? And then what happens after that? I just I come back just with a lot of love for other people. <gasps> Did you hear that? So after he lets himself get lost and melt into the tenderness and cries for sometimes an hour or two, like really cries, he feels lots of love for everybody. I don't know, that doesn't sound so bad to me. So... I'm joking a little bit with you because you were being playful with your child, but, or your child was playful. But, you know, so often we're afraid of the emotions that, they'll, that we will be lost or swamped or overwhelmed in some way. And um, it, it usually, usually people don't cry forever or be enraged forever, you know. This is where impermanence, it's good news, things will change. When we're having a blissful experience, impermanence is not such good news. You know, one, a friend of mine went to our Zen teacher once during an intensive retreat and she was just in a state of so much luminous beauty and stillness and she reported it to him and he just looked at her and said, that will change. I think she was expecting, you know, pats on the back or something. You're a great meditator. No, he just said, that will change. So, it's the same with the tenderness and the vulnerability. And at a certain point, it will change. Either you get tired of it or it just moves, it morphs into something else. We can't stop this process of arising and passing away and ceaseless change. But we're worried that we're going to get stuck somewhere. Like, remember when you were a kid, you'd cross your eyes and be afraid they would stick? Um, it's, it's like that. I don't think we can. And as to when you stop doing a practice, um, when you're practicing on your own or you have a whole section of time when there isn't, you know, something else you're being guided to do and you're experimenting and exploring this, just do that, like experiment and explore and see what happens if you stay with it, what happens if you decide that's enough and pull back, does it feel like you've interrupted a process or does it feel like that really is enough for now, uh, that you touched something and now you go. So I'm not giving you an answer, I'm really encouraging you to play around and explore. And 
And here you have time to do that. So, thank you. Um, we have time for one more, if anyone has another question. Yeah. Um, this is more practical. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that I can really let loose and ball when I'm with like a, a therapist or an interview. A therapist or? or in, in an interview with a mm-hmm. Okay, this is a good question. So Devin's asking if it's okay to sob in the hall. Um, well, you can hear people crying, right? And, but if it's like, you know, full-on loud sobbing, that's what the desert is for. That's why we have a desert behind us, right? And, and some rocky mountains back there. Um, so then you can just like howl but not so much in the hall, because it'll scare people. You know, they'll worry that you're not okay, and that they need to comfort you or something. But when you hear the sniffles, or you can hear sometimes, you know, quiet crying, we kind of encourage that. I feel like you haven't really meditated until you've cried. You know, that there's something about just just letting yourself cry, because it's sad. Um, we all have some heartbreak, and so I think that's clear. You know, don't ever feel bad, though, if you're snuffling a little and crying, because you're really giving somebody else permission to do it. You're making it okay for someone else. So you think, well, that's sort of what everybody does, and now I'm a real meditator. Um, Anybody else? Okay, so Hannah's wondering, would, would you cry in a regular sit? You know, look, when you're very still, you're not going to be crying because the mind is peaceful and calm. But when something arises, like maybe the memory of um, a loved one who's passed away, and... You know, you can often just let it go, but sometimes it's not so easy to let things go. Like sometimes, like Leela said last night, it was the anniversary of her mom passing away. Now that happened a long time ago. So probably if an image of her mother came, she would let it go. But maybe it happened seven weeks ago and the image of her mother would come, and right away there would be tears. Do you see? It's okay to have some tears. And it's not a sign of something wrong, or sticking attachment, or something like that. We're giving permission here to experience the full spectrum of your humanness. And In some traditions, the teaching is very strict that whatever thought, whatever feeling it is, just, you know, keep it away. And if you're doing a concentration practice, purely concentration, not with mindfulness, 
that is how you practice. Like if you have a mantra, you push away everything that isn't that and you pour all of your attention into, say, the metta phrase. And anything else that comes, you don't pay attention to. Pour all of your attention into the phrases. And that's a concentration practice. Um, Pour all of your attention into the breath. That's a concentration practice. But we're opening up to sensations in the body. We're going to be including thoughts and emotions. Because we want to be able to practice all the time. When, not just when we're on our cushions. We want to strengthen our mindfulness enough that it can catch our moments of reactivity or impulsive acting out of something. Um, we want to do that and we don't get to do that by pushing everything away. Because then when everything, when we stop concentrating, it all just flows back in. So it's a temporary freedom from hindrances or any problems of our life. But then when we aren't able to be that concentrated, those things appear. And even if you're doing a long concentration retreat, which I have done, you know, maybe six weeks, night and day, metta, 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 as a concentration practice, at some point the concentration shatters and and something wells up that needs our attention because it's safe for that to happen because we've created the conditions of enough peacefulness and enough steadiness of presence that whatever needs to reveal itself to us can so it's not a mistake does that make sense? okay thank you everybody so happy to be back here with you enjoy your supper Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.